A couple years ago, I was given the incredible opportunity to speak for The One Project. It was in San Diego. And it was unbelievable to me, but I got the chance to stand up on stage and present a message that I felt God had given to me. I was feeling okay about it until later in the day, a young man approached me to uh, give me what he thought was a compliment. And he said, I just wanted to tell you, you were my favorite speaker. And I went, oh, wow, that's awesome. Thank you. He said, well, I should correct myself. You were my favorite speaker until someone came up and I liked them better than you. So now you're my second favorite. Oh, okay. He said, you know, because you weren't the most dynamic, you weren't the funniest, and you definitely weren't the most charismatic. But he said, I liked the fact that you started in one place and you ended in another. <laughs> so, folks, I will guarantee you today, I will not be the best speaker that we have had here at Boulder Church, but we will start one place and we will end in another. <laughs> Would you please bow your heads with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, at this point in the year, um, we just reflect back on all you've done for us, and we are so grateful. Thank you for being with us. We ask that you will continue to be here today as we study your word together. In your name we pray, amen. I'm sorry. <clears throat> When I was younger and single, my aunt used to give me a piece of advice. You all may have aunts who give you advice like this. She said, just remember, you can marry them rich just as easy as you can marry them poor. Which sounded like, you know, okay advice and doable. But for me, I never felt I had anything in common with the rich guys. And quite frankly, the schools that I attended didn't have a lot of rich guys there anyway. Plus, I always kind of had this dream of marrying someone where we could pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make our fortune together. So I got my wish. <laughs> At least the first part. I found someone who, like me, was not wealthy and like me, had a chunk of student debt to repay. <laughs> I'm so glad some of you can identify. Um, and I thought, perfect, we're going to pull ourselves up from, by our bootstraps, and what could be more romantic? I've always been a hard worker, but I truly thought that we could work smarter and not harder. When Aliyah and I first got married, I was sure that the path to success and getting out of debt was real estate. So we got a mortgage on a second house in Berrien Springs that we renovated and then rented. Unfortunately, the house had more renovations than renters. And after five years of very literal blood, sweat, and tears, we sold it during the recession at a loss. We then bought a home in Texas, 
which was ridiculously affordable by Colorado standards, but we still somehow managed to buy high and sell low. So real estate was not our path to getting out of debt quickly. I had heard about how people were making big money reselling items on eBay. So I did this as my side hustle while we worked and lived in Texas. And even though I was moderately successful, it didn't even scratch the surface of our student loans. Finally, we realized that the only solution to our student debt was to just put our heads down, work hard, and make extra payments. It has never felt, for one moment, romantic as I had envisioned it. And unfortunately, I don't have a success story to share with you. Honestly, after 15 years of marriage, we're still making those extra payments, and at this point, hoping to have our student debt taken care of by the time our children are ready for college. So, I don't think King Solomon was just being dramatic when he wrote these verses about freeing yourself from debts you've committed to as quickly as possible. He is saying this particularly in a scenario where you have put up collateral for someone else. This can cause extra strain and stress, and it ultimately ruins many relationships. Solomon, like a good father, is trying to impart his wisdom to future generations. He's encouraging us to live lives free from debt, stress, and worry. God wants us to live free lives. Don't be a slave to your debt or anyone else's, but work hard to live as liberated people. The takeaway I get from Solomon's words is that no matter how hard it is, we are not to shirk our responsibilities. We should first consider and choose carefully the things to which we commit, and when we've chosen unwisely, work like crazy to fulfill our commitment and be done with it. There are no shortcuts. This is the same advice I will give to my children. However, we all know that our children are not just listening to us, they are watching and imitating, right? A few weeks ago, Eli and I were watching a show with our kids, and the two children in the show were fighting and arguing. And so I looked at Ellie and Anderson, and I said, this reminds me of two people I know. I was trying to point out the arguing was not good and trying to bring about some sort of object lesson from what we were watching. Then recently, we were watching an episode of Little House on the Prairie, which I just rediscovered, and I'm loving watching the episodes over again with my kids. So during the last one, Pa and Ma are arguing, and they're upset with each other. And Ellie looks over at me with a little smirk, and she said, Mama, this reminds me of two people I know. <laughs> The advice King Solomon dispenses in Proverbs sounds really harsh at times, but I believe it is all intended to help us live the absolute best life we can. 
Sometimes in Christianity, there is a mindset of kind of rushing through or glossing over this life because we just want to get to the good stuff of heaven and a new life. But God wants us to live a good life here and now. And the things we do on this earth and in this life matter. I think Solomon knew that others who heard his words might try to take a shortcut through real estate or eBay. And so he tells us about the ants. Go to the ant, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. My grandparents owned a farm, and from time to time, they would hire people who were passing through who needed work. They liked to tell the story about one man they hired. He showed up in the morning, and my grandpa was ready to get to work. But the hired man said, an empty sack can't stand up, meaning I can't work unless my belly's full. And so my grandma fixed him breakfast, And as the man finished his meal, my grandpa said, okay then, let's get to work. To which the man replied, sorry, a full sack can't bend over. (laughs) It sounds too simple, I know, but consider the ant. Be like the ant. We are not pointed to a magnificent eagle. Instead, we are directed to watch the very humble ant. Keep your head down, get your work done, Be a valuable member of the team. So the beginning verses of this passage tell us who we should strive to be. And the later verses tell us what not to be. Verses 12 to 15 say, Riff-raff and rascals talk out of both sides of their mouths. They wink at each other. They shuffle their feet. They cross their fingers behind their backs. Their perverse minds are always cooking up something nasty, always stirring up trouble. Catastrophe is just around the corner for them. A total smash up, their lives run beyond repair. I looked at a few different commentaries on this verse, and they all agree that the person Solomon is describing here is basically a sleazeball. This person acts one way to your face and another way behind your back. They try to present themselves as something good, but are constantly stirring up trouble. We Christians are often the person that Solomon has described here. We are hypocrites. We say we are saved by God's grace and goodness, but we cannot extend that same grace to other people. We get caught up in little fights and arguments that stir up trouble within our communities and ourselves. I've been reading a book by Brant Hansen called Unoffendable, and it has given me a really interesting new perspective, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Hansen talks about how it is hard to let things go because we feel like we have to defend ourselves, and sometimes we even feel like we have to defend the kingdom of God. He gives an example of two ways to handle an insulting comment you see online. It goes like this. Option one, let's see if it comes up on the screen here. Thank you, 4.10 p.m. See insulting comment from Bob371 on blog. 
Come on up there for us. That's all right. I'll, I'll just keep reading them if that's all right. So 4.10 p.m., you see the insulting comment from Bob371. 4.15 p.m., stew about it. 4.20 p.m., craft amazingly thorough, literate, snarky reply to set Bob 371 straight. 4.30 p.m., hit submit and walk away from computer, drop the mic style, all smug and cool. 4.40 p.m., return to computer to delete smug reply. 4.41 p.m., see that someone has already replied to my smug reply. 4.42 p.m., delete my reply anyway, but write another one. 5.30 p.m., eat dinner with family, but distractedly because I'm bugged by comments on blog. 5.45 p.m., see another blood-boiling response from the big jerk, formerly known as Bob371. 5.52 p.m., decide to write something sort of nice, but still, you know, making my point. 5.55 p.m., see new comment. Someone else whom I respect thinks I was being a jerk in my original comment. Respond to that person via email to apologize but not really because the jerk formerly known as Bob371 is a bigger jerk. 6.10 p.m., write another comment, commence stewing about the whole thing until 1.30 a.m. That's option one. Here's option two. 4.10 p.m., see insulting comment from Bob371 on blog. 4.15 p.m., thank him for it. Point out what I appreciate about it. If I want to continue the conversation, fine, but otherwise it doesn't matter. 4.20 p.m., go play Madden NFL with my daughter, get beat 75-0, then eat dinner with the family and laugh about stuff. Hansen writes, I've learned option two is pretty awesome and it's way more restful. I actually sleep better when I've chosen to be unoffendable. The thing is, many people will agree with me until they see what Bob371 wrote. Maybe he said something that's totally untrue or anti-God or immoral or whatever. Now what? My experience is still that option two still works. I don't control the world. I don't control Bob371. And I'm not going to cancel out every strand of thought on the internet with which I disagree. Hansen goes on to talk about an idea that has gained popularity among Christians. And that idea is that anger is good. Righteous anger is especially good. And we need to get angry in order to get things done and affect change. But this idea is not biblical at all. Ephesians 4.31 says, and we'll put it on the screen because I'd love for you to stay in Proverbs in your Bible. Ephesians 4.31 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Colossians 3.8, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Hansen says later, my anger isn't a sign of trust, it's the very opposite. 
And let's think about it. What good has your anger ever truly done? I want you to take just a minute to think about a time when your anger was productive. And I don't mean that it helped you clean the house. I've gotten some really shiny living spaces as a result of my anger, but that's not what I'm talking about today. Think about a time your anger actually helped you to bring about something good, something positive. My father, Don, who many of you might know by now, he's been going to this church for about two years. You'll see he walks with a cane most of the time, and that's because he was hit by a drunk driver nearly 10 years ago. It messed up the left side of his body, and he had to undergo multiple surgeries to get to the place where he is today. So there was a time when he was living with my sister, and my siblings and I would take turns driving him to his doctor's appointments. One of my turns was a two-part deal. He needed a blood transfusion, so we went to the hospital the first day to get everything tested, and we had to return the second day for the actual procedure. We went in for them to get a blood draw and make sure everything was good to go. But the nurses had a terrible time finding a vein. It took multiple sticks before they could get enough blood. And my father, who's really good and patient with this stuff most of the time, by the end of it, he was just hurting and ready to get out of there. And I was feeling the stress of it by then too. After they finally got the blood, they put an ID bracelet on him. And they gave him very specific instructions to not take the wristband off for any reason. If he didn't have it on his wrist when I brought him back in the morning, he would not be allowed the blood transfusion and he would have to go through today's ordeal all over again. So I took my dad back to my sister's house and we made arrangements for me to come get him in the morning and take him back. When I came in the next morning, I see that my dad is sitting on the edge of the bed and he's messing with something. He said, Dina, come here, I need you to help me with this. I said, Dad, what did you do? He said, well, I wanted to take a shower this morning so I cut the ID bracelet off so I wouldn't get it wet. Now I just need you to help me tape it back together so the nurses don't know. I was angry. I was more than a little angry. So dad's sitting there on the bed and I crouch down next to him face to face and I tell him how angry I am. All of my frustration with rearranging my schedule and being a caregiver, something that I'm not gifted at, it just came boiling out of me. And I ranted about how this was exactly what we had been told not to do. If we couldn't fix the ID bracelet, we'd have to get a whole new blood draw. I went over all the reasons he shouldn't have done this. How could he have wasted my time yesterday when we would have to do everything all over again? When I finally stopped, my father looked into my eyes there face to face and he said, Dina, I don't want to tell you this, but you could really use a breath mint. <laughs> oh. I am here to tell you that our anger does not do 
any good. We can rationalize and justify our anger. Sometimes our inclination is to bring the justice of God to this world, but this is not our job to do. Vengeance is God's, not ours. We are commanded to love, but we are never commanded to get angry. Hansen writes, choosing to be unoffendable means choosing to be humble. Not only that, the practice teaches humility. Once you've decided you can't control other people, once you've reconciled yourself to the fact that the world and its people are broken, once you've realized your own moral failure before God, once you've abandoned the idea that your significance comes from anything other than God, you're growing in humility, and that's exactly where God wants us all. In fact, when we look at how much God loves us and has forgiven us, it only makes sense that we would live our lives not angrily marching about trying to right all the wrongs, but instead trying to share the love we've been given with others. I was assigned this text in Proverbs a long time ago, so it has been ruminating in my brain for quite some time. And I just kept struggling with the last part of it because it seems kind of odd to talk about the things that God hates. We usually talk about God's love and it feels uncomfortable to talk about the opposite. I was telling a friend of mine about these verses and she had the same reaction I did when I first read them. She said her heart kind of clenches when she reads the words, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, as though that hate is directed at her. I was thinking about this text, sitting here in church one day, listening to Pastor Jen speak, and I had one of those light bulb moments where God told me that these verses about what he hates are giving us a glimpse into his heart. When I thought about it that way, it completely changed my perspective. Have you ever noticed that when you are getting to know another person, you usually begin talking about all the things that you like? You say positive, nice things. But when you truly get to know someone, you learn what they don't like and their pet peeves. So looking at these last text in that light, it is really exciting to me to learn the things that God hates. And I will note that they are not even close to the things we've seen smeared on the signs of Westboro Baptist protesters that say incendiary things like, God hates Obama, or God hates your feelings, or worse. Some like to claim that God hates a certain person or a type of person when it helps their agenda. But let's read these verses again. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, 
a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. When we read these words as offenses against us or against the poor and powerless, it becomes a really wonderful thing. God hates it when people lie to us. God hates the bloodshed of the innocent. God hates it when people stir up conflict in our communities. Isn't that absolutely beautiful? I love this glimpse into the heart of our Savior. When people lie to us or about us, he hates that. When someone stirs up conflict, it's detestable to God. I now love these verses because they remind me that the God we serve is not emotionless or passive. He hates these things. None of us wants to do the things God hates. We want to love other people, we want to be good people, and we want to help others. It feels good to help, and we help because we want to feel good. I remember my grandma laughing and telling us about a boy at our church, I think he was maybe like 10 to 12 at the time. He saw her walking into church and he offered his arm to help her climb the steps. She was so impressed by his manners and she thanked him for his help. To which he replied, oh, you're welcome. I like helping old people. <laughs> I recently read a book by Nadia Boltz Weber called Accidental Saints. And she talks about this work of helping others. She says, Christ's presence is not embodied in those who feed the hungry as important as that work is. But Christ's presence is in the hungry being fed. Christ comes not in the form of those who visit the imprisoned, but in the imprisoned being cared for. And those who meet their needs are not a romantic special class of Christ-like people. We all are equally as sinful and saintly as the other. No, Christ comes to us in the needs of the poor and hungry, Needs that are met by another so that the gleaming redemption of God might be known. I find comfort in the fact that my failed attempts at helping others were not really me messing up God's working. I'm never supposed to be Jesus to anyone. But I will often be given the chance to serve him and to see him in other people. We're going to play a little game now, if you will indulge me. If you can just get out a piece of paper, it can just be a scrap. Um, it's not important enough to save for later. And number your paper one through six. <clears throat> now, I'm going to show you a few ads on the screen. And I'd like you to figure out what the ad is for. Now you're looking, we're looking for just what the product might be, but if you can guess the name brand, bonus points for you. So Luke, can we have the first ad up on the screen? There we go. This one says, because life makes wrinkles. So just number one, if you could guess what that product is. Bonus points if you get the brand name. Okay, Luke, the next one. This one is precision parking. 
precision parking. All right, if you have your answers for that one, let's move to number three. This one I don't have a tagline for. Just see if you can guess what that might be for. Getting the seeds out. All right, if you've put down your guess for number three, let's go to number four. This one says, a dog makes life better. Adopt. See the picture without the dog and the second with the dog, and you can tell it's just better. All right, number five. Number five, the entrance is a wide door, and the exit is a really skinny door. So write down what product you think this might be for. Again, bonus points for you if you get the brand name. And then our final one, number six. You'll see the ants are going around, and this one says it's sugar-free. All right, if you've all made your guesses, let's go back through them. So we will go to number one, because life makes wrinkles. All right, this one, Luke, if you will reveal the answer, please. This is Moisturizer for Men by Nivea. Did anyone get that one, Moisturizer? Ah, oh, very good, good work. All right, the next one, number two, park, uh, precision parking. If you will please reveal the answer. This was for Park Assist by Volkswagen. Anyone get that one right? I love that ad, but I, <laughs> nice, but I thought that one was pretty tricky. Number three, did we get this one? What? Yes, Pastor Jim, dental floss, good work. And it is Colgate dental floss specifically. All right, number four, a dog makes life better, adopt. And this one was for pedigree dog food. I think this one was a little tricky. It's not obvious for dog food, but you know, pedigree does support adopting dogs. Number five, I think this one's so clever. The entrance door is nice and wide and the exit is a little tiny skinny. Does anyone know what product this is for? What? Sorry, I couldn't understand. Oh, sugar? No, this one is for weight loss by Weight Watchers. I love that one. I think it's a great ad. And then our final one, number six, it's sugar-free. The ants are avoiding the lollipop. This one is for Chupa Chups lollipops. <laughs> Ellie got that one right. Good job, kiddo. So I've been thinking a lot about what is our brand as Christians? What do people think when they hear our name or drive by one of our churches? Are we known as the people who are so full of so-called righteous anger? Are we the people who are easily offended by other people and their behaviors? Are we the first ones to judge and correct? Or is our brand the one God intends for us? Love. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think this is sometimes so simple that we try to complicate it so that we can better understand. It doesn't make logical sense to love our enemies or to pray for those who persecute us. Solomon's words for us in Proverbs are intended not to be used as a weapon against others or for other people or just for the world to come. His words were written for us now so that we might live full lives now, lives that are characterized by God's incredible love for us and our desire to share that love with others, deserving or not.